I fell asleep and woke up to a gun and my forehead pressed against my forehead and Jim saying, I love you very much, but I will kill you. Stay awake. That's Grace Stone. In the 1970s in California, she was a senior leader in the People's Temple and witness to Reverend Jim Jones's evolution from Midwestern preacher to Messiah to maniac. This is Oversight Jonestown, CQ Roll Call's podcast where we re-examine our nation's scandals through the prism of congressional investigation. We're telling this story at a moment when congressional oversight is again gripping the nation. We've told the story of Jonestown and how Jim Jones led 917 other people to their deaths, including the assassination of Congressman Leo Ryan. I'm Sheila McVicker, and in this episode, we reveal how Reverend Jim Jones gained power and then abused it. Coercion and blackmail became routine. We're going to take you on a journey where Jones's evil actions were cloaked by his public reputation. It's his descent into madness. But we begin in the American heartland. Jim Jones grew up in Indiana, a place of Jim Crow laws and the Ku Klux Klan. As he began to find his way in the 1950s as a white evangelical preacher, he found something else, a cause. And that cause was racial equality. In the days when few whites and blacks worshipped together, Jones racially integrated his Indianapolis church. You know, he appropriated the fire and brimstone rhetoric and delivery. That's Akivu Hutchinson, author of White Nights, Black Paradise. She spent years researching Jim Jones and his church and what it meant to the African-American community, especially women. You know, that was quite attractive, you know, to not just black folk, but folks of all different walks of life who were looking for a, a charismatic, you know, highly messianic figure. The church was not enough for Jones. He also sought a role in public life. In 1961, Jones became the Human Rights Commissioner for Indianapolis. He integrated movie theaters, lunch counters, got blacks into jobs previously open only to whites. He became a respected player, admired in the civil rights movement, and was looking for a bigger stage. In 1965, Jim Jones found it in California, the promised land for Americans, white and black. You also have, obviously, during this period, the 50s into the 70s, the civil rights movement, uh, the black power movement, the women's movement. So, you know, all of these movements are converging in the period in which People's Temple becomes active. And for more than a decade, Jones capitalized on the women's movement, the Democratic Party, and most of all, black power. The Black Panthers, led by Huey Newton, allied with Angela Davis, posed fundamental questions. 
How could African Americans win not just citizenship rights, but real economic and political power? But when African Americans arrived in San Francisco and Los Angeles, they quickly found that they were systematically shut out of living wage jobs. They were shut out of you know, equitable housing. They were shut out of equitable education. And when Jim Jones moved into San Francisco, he intentionally centered his church at the heart of the black community. He practiced dramatic faith healings and demanded racial equality. Thousands were drawn to the People's Temple. So I was interested in the fact that it was a church that was interracial. That's acting San Francisco Police Department Captain Yolanda Williams. She was born into a middle-class African-American family that fell on hard times after her dad became ill. Her family joined the People's Temple. She grew up in the church and says she's speaking now as a cult survivor. The churches that I was raised in, my dad was a minister, and he's a Baptist minister, so they were primarily black churches. It was uh, exciting but unusual back in the late 60s, early 70s, to have interracial or fully integrated uh, churches. With more than 70% of the membership of the People's Temple African American, many of them women, and many of them senior citizens, Jim Jones deliberately allied himself with the black community, using black power to enhance his own. Then you got the Black Panthers that are in love with him. They think he's great. He's doing good stuff. He embraces uh, Martin Luther King. He embraces all of these things that are near and true and dear to a black person. Jones is cunning, strategic, self-promoting, with a knack of placing himself in the center of public events. Let's listen to an introduction at an event featuring San Francisco's political stars. Angela Davis, Mayor George Moscone, and as Master of Ceremonies, Assemblyman Willie Brown. From the religious community of San Francisco, a young man came up on the scene, became an inspiration for a whole lot of people. He's done fantastic things. Let me present to you a man who bought 1,000 tickets for tonight's concert, Reverend Jim Jones. This tape, like all the tape in this episode featuring Jones's voice, is part of the collection of the Jonestown Institute, a repository of documents and original research. On this night, Jones stole the show and earned more applause. Of course, he packed the hall with his supporters. We've had to look in strange places to find our prophets, but I hope America listens and listens while there's still time because the attitude of the nation lacketh much when it comes to concern. There's still a great deal of apathy. Blacks being run out, and Indians run out of every rural community. We must come together, and we want to come together. As the People's Temple grew, so did Jones's social outreach. He built an empire in California. He owned a fleet of Greyhound buses. He ran three megachurches attended by thousands of followers. He ran centers for seniors. He ran group foster homes. If it was civic society, he had his hand in it. 
and now he turned to politics. My name is Marshall Kilduff, and back in the 70s, I was a city hall uh, reporter. Today, Marshall Kilduff is an editorial writer at the San Francisco Chronicle. In the 1970s, covering city hall, he grew curious about Jim Jones. Jones would flood the room with his followers, plus uh, a, a kind of a coterie, an entourage right around him of uh, maybe a half dozen people. And was that sort of normal practice in San Francisco back in the day? No way. Uh, this was very different. The way he would arrive, sweep into the room, kind of overtake it with uh, the size of the group he was with. And th- that was just not the rule, not the norm in any of these uh Pretty boring city hall meetings. And as Kilduff became aware, Jones and his thousands of temple members were a sought-after political commodity. Votes, vote-getters, crowd-makers. He said and did all the right things, and he did it in a big way. Uh, he worked the field very hard. He knew what to do, and I, I think he was successful. And that, that bought him a measure of acceptance and, and political uh, protection. When Rosalind Carter the wife of the Democratic presidential candidate Jimmy Carter came to town to campaign. It was Jim Jones who provided the enthusiastic crowd. They clapped like crazy when she was introduced. Uh, I mean, the whole thing was central casting a dream. Uh, it, and, and also, again, there was a racial face to this. Uh, the old people, young people, family. I mean, it was a, kind of a dream come true. And if you're, if you're a campaign organizer or... <laughs> You have need of uh, bodies to fill a room. This guy was was a godsend. And in the fall of 1976, just before the presidential election, it's Mrs. Carter on the phone with the Reverend Jim Jones. I can't. Uh, I can't say how moved I am. I. Uh, I usually don't like being a preacher. I don't like for words, but I'm deeply touched. Is there anything particular that we could do for you? The recording made by the People's Temple is faint, but Rosalind Carter is calling to stroke the ego of Jim Jones, saying that Jimmy Carter had asked her to call. As Jones himself well knew, Mrs. Carter was calling because Jim Jones had votes, thousands of votes. Let's remember California was then a heavily contested state between Republicans and Democrats. And in the 1976 presidential election, Jimmy Carter lost California, but carried San Francisco. In late-night phone calls, Jones strategized with his aides. I think we ought to try to get uh, into uh, both the Republican and the Democratic Party. Uh, I'll try to do a rundown on our registration and see who inhales in the 5th and 6th Assembly Districts. That can vote, but as a resident, won't get us in some fucking trouble. Jones embedded himself and the membership of the People's Temple very firmly in the machine politics of Democratic San Francisco. Rosalie Wright-Packenham was editor of a San Francisco-based magazine called New West. She was under no illusions about the nature of the man or the politics he played. Jones had something on everybody, and that was the the, uh, power that he had, and he could bring out for... Any vote, busloads of people. And they, this is how he, he, this way, he kept his power. He had something on everybody, and he could turn out the crowds. 
He was even credited with greatly aiding the election of George Moscone, the Democratic mayor of San Francisco, after Moscone just squeaked into office in 1976. And in the way of machine politics, says Rosalie, Jones got his reward. Moscone named him to the housing committee, uh, Jones, the head of the housing committee, which was a big job. And it was great because then he had access to getting his people into housing. You know, it was part of his, his goal to be in control of that population. And uh, he certainly was. He dodged scrutiny, hiding behind the First Amendment, freedom of religion. Marshall Kilduff. There was also uh, just uh, basic politics, freedom of expression, the, the right to petition, uh, free press. All these things could be uh, tapped by the church to uh, halo their actions. And I think that's an impregnable position. I think they were in a pretty good spot if you want to resist any challenge or, or legal inquiry. His roadshow faith healings, not just in San Francisco, but across the U.S., were big moneymakers. Jones was as charismatic, as dramatic, as any preacher on the evangelical circuit. You got trouble with your eyes? Yes. Right now, you come and meet me in the aisle, and it'll all be gone. What's the color of this pen? White and what? Green, right. As time passed, his church morphed. While he preached equality, the leadership of the church no longer reflected the membership. Here's Yolanda Williams. And then suddenly the hierarchy started to change in such a way that when we started to look at his counseling committee, and his planning committee, they were primarily white folk. By 1976, he was no longer preaching the Word of God. He was preaching that he was God. Now, if your God is so much better than me, why don't he do something about those folk dying in all those churches? He cursed the Bible. He praised the values of socialism and communism and fostered among his congregation a sense of paranoia, coming repression, that the U.S. government was the enemy. The peril of power, comparable to Adolf Hitler, is evident today in America in every phase of its life. The atmosphere here is exactly like the atmosphere of Germany in 1933. Inside the People's Temple, now closed to those who were not members, Jones began to more overtly display his own demons, including his drug addiction, exert more control. There were public shamings. They wanted to, they wanted to break you. It was their technique, their tact of getting you to give up. Here's Grace Stone again. In San Francisco at the People's Temple, she was in a leadership position as the head counselor for church members a powerful position. So, first of all, nothing was done drastically in People's Temple. Um, everything was done very slowly. Over time, Jones conditioned his flock to accept his excesses and cruelty. 
Psychological torture was also part of his arsenal. I was having a very hard time staying awake. In fact, I was biting my lip to stay awake. And for some reason, Jim had a gun that night. And uh, he said, don't anybody fall asleep because I will kill you. And I fell asleep and woke up to a gun and my forehead pressed against my forehead. And Jim saying, I love you very much, but I will kill you. Stay awake. Yolanda Williams has similar memories. As a young person, do you remember being aware of the darker side of people being beaten, of children being punished, or children being taken from their parents and given into foster care or to someone else to parent within the church? I saw it. I mean, I, I can't deny seeing it. But again, when you're, you see something over an extended period of time, it doesn't appear to be different. It just appears to be a natural progression. And when it's sold to you as a bill of goods, it's something that's good for you. It's something that any comrade would do for another. Then you start to rationalize what is irrational. Increasingly, in the name of correcting and policing the community, there was violence, including during church services. Grace Stone. If it was a man, um, there was boxing done. People were brought up from the audience that were um, bigger and stronger than that person. And once that person tired out, they, he would have a second and possibly a third person come up and, and fight with that person. Then he got on a thing with a paddle, a wooden paddle, and he had one of the biggest people, strongest, it was a woman, um, would hit uh, a ch be it a child or an adult with that paddle in front of everyone. For Jones, sex was just another weapon to humiliate, control, coerce, and threaten. Here's Yolanda Williams again. But we didn't realize he was having all this sex with all these people, men, women, everything, because he controlled the, the men because a lot of these men had already been humiliated knowing that they had allowed themselves to be used physically and sexually by him. And then the next thing I know, he brought up a woman and said um, she had supposedly been writing him love letters and supposedly wanted to have sex with him. And he was tired of it. He'd had enough. And he made that person stand up. He made her strip her clothing and she was proceeded to be told by the men in the room how ugly she was. And um, then these, I don't know if it was three or four women got up with closed fists and started hitting her about the head. They were just, um, just kept, you know, punching her in the head. And the nurse said, you need to stop now. And of course he didn't. And if he got mad at one of the women, he would discuss relationships that he had with them. And every time when he would claim he had to have a relationship with a person, it was always because it was for the cause. He'd sacrifice his body sexually, physically with them in order to make sure they stayed in good standing with the church. And eventually, in keeping with the socialist principles espoused by Jones, members were encouraged really ordered to give up their possessions, even their clothes, and live in communes, giving all their money to the church in exchange for a weekly pittance. 
And then they um, started doing uh, communal living, uh, I guess, of people that were single, young people, and it was um, both sexes, not just, uh, you know, all women or all men. And I think by living communal, those people that worked, Jones collected all of their money. Jones was amassing a fortune. Senior citizens, and there were hundreds of them, almost all black, with their social security checks, were cash cows. Their monthly allowances were turned over to the church. As evidence of sincerity, members were told to sign over the deeds to their homes, property the temple sold, and pocketed the proceeds. He was misappropriating state funds meant to support the emotionally disturbed, mentally ill, and foster children, all under People's Temple care. Other than the property that he had people sign over, other than the social security checks, the foster children checks, the pension checks. Insurance policies, jewelry, and any type of stocks and bonds or or things that you may have uh, accumulated or acquired. And if you knew that your parent was dying or had a trust for you, try and make a deal with them prior to their deaths to try and get some early payout money. As Jim Jones's abuses grew, so did his paranoia. So he set up the need for flight, the need for a new safe place, as he put it, an escape route. Yolanda Williams recalls his words. You know, this is not a safe country for us anymore. If you truly love your black brothers and sisters, you wouldn't want to be in the United States anyway. This country is so racist. We need to create a utopia. We can create our own country, our own lifestyle, where we can keep our doors unlocked. We can all be one big happy family. And I'm looking at some places, a place in Russia, and this place in this small country, the South America, it's called Guyana. When you look back on your teenage self and what you saw and what you rationalized, what do you think now? That it was pathetic. I knew that my parents stayed because of the fact of fear fear of what may happen if you attempt to leave after seeing what happened to others that attempted to leave the church even when we were in the United States. Fear is a powerful weapon. For those who weren't fearful enough, there were guards with guns. And to leave, that was the ultimate act of treason. Here's Grace Stone. And one one day, the kind of light bulb went on, and I thought, um, I realized that with Jones, the game was to keep you off balance, and that no matter what you did or who you were, it was never going to be good enough. We were always told that if we ever left, that we would be hunted down and killed. And when I left, I thought to myself, I'm going to be 65 years old and still in this situation. I'd rather be dead than to live the rest of my life like this. So I made a decision that if they kill me, then so be it. In July 1976, Grace Stone, once so close to Jones, had had enough. She fled out of state. For Jones, this was a betrayal raising the specter of what he had long feared, that sooner or later, defecting members, law enforcement, or the media would begin to catch up with him 
and as crimes. And in 1977, the press did. Here's Rosalie Wright-Packenham about the reporter who was on to Jones. And Marshall Kilduff took his, his sort of fledgling story to San Francisco Magazine, and they uh, said, yeah, well, we'll look into it. And the next day, these bouncers crowded into the office of San Francisco Magazine, and the editor at the time said, I don't want to go near this. No, we're not going to do it. Those bouncers Rosalie talks about, they were Jim Jones's henchmen. What he couldn't get through political power or money, he tried to get through muscle. Rebuffed by San Francisco Magazine, Kilduff brought a story across town to Rosalie. And he put it down on my typewriter. He said, Rosalie, I can't get anybody to pay attention to this. So I read it. And then she said, let's do it. Here's Marshall Kilduff. Eventually, uh, we met up with some ex-members who were very spooked about talking, but were willing to let us know what they had to say about the temple's operations. And that's where the story took off from. Defectors began to come out of the woodwork. And I said, oh, this is very interesting, but we have to have everybody with a name, a picture, a real name, and a picture, and their quote, if we're going to publish this. Did Jones know that New West was planning to publish a piece? Oh, yes. So Jones did threaten, and he was so politically powerful at the time. Jones wanted to stop the story coming out by any means. But at that point, I moved out of my house because he was threatening me personally. But You had to leave your home? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because of the bouncers. Another time, they found me on the phone. The last call I heard was, don't do it. Like, don't publish it. And that's when I got my kids up. Rosalie whisked her kids away to safety and under police escort moved into a hotel. I was out of there and and really afraid for my kids more than me, but me too. That's when I went out and bought a, a weapon and I learned how to use it. Rupert Murdoch, yes, that Rupert Murdoch, now of Fox News, based in New York, was the owner and publisher of New West. And he had Rosalie's back. Then he called and said, I know a good story when I see one. I will give you all the legal help you need. This was from New York. Because advertisers, you know, I don't know if he got 500 calls or or notes that they were going to pull their ads. Big national brands. Big national brands. Um, And... In any event, he supported us all the way, and everything went through his uh, New York lawyers. Uh, and they gave us the go-ahead, and then they said, all right, you, you've got it. You know, go with it. In July 1977, New West published Inside People's Temple, an explosive expose that detailed Jones's political connections, and most sensationally, published on-the-record allegations of physical abuse, including of children detailed fraudulent use of state funds, and claimed that members had been coerced into handing over property, including homes. These were allegations of serious crimes, worthy of serious investigation. I read Jones' parts of the original story on the phone the night before we went to press. What did he say? He, he said... 
No, Ms. Wright, that's not true, Ms. Wright. I mean, he was very unctuous. Jones was in a room surrounded by his most important lieutenants, one of whom later wrote about the exchange. Here's how Rosalie tells it. At the end of the conversation, he, oh, oh, he first held up a piece of cardboard on which he wrote, we didn't scare her enough. So then he held up a sign saying, we leave for Guyana tonight. You might wonder where law enforcement is in all of this. There were crimes, corruption, and coercion. It turns out there was a small unit in the district attorney's office that was on his trail. But... We're kind of set back because he said, well, you can't go after Jim Jones. You can't go after Jim Jones? Correct. And he said, do you realize who Jim Jones is? In our next episode, a tale of corruption, obstruction, and cover-up inside the San Francisco District Attorney's Office. Why didn't law enforcement ever press charges against the Reverend Jim Jones? Why didn't authorities stop Jones before he fled the country? And how did Jim Jones get away to commit murder? Oversight Jonestown was reported and written by me and Joanne Levine. This episode was produced by Evan Campbell. Editing on the series by Joanne Levine with an assist from Martha Ann Overland. Fact-checking by Noah Berman. Oversight Jonestown could not have happened without the reporting help and insights of our CQ colleagues, Mark Strickerts and Marsha Myers. A huge shout-out to Jillian Roberts for her tireless support. Take a look at our website at rollcall.com forward slash Jonestown, and you'll see a beautiful design by Marnie Prince. It was built by Patrick Blinkhorn, Rajiv Manath, and Tom Schaefer. Oversight is a production of CQ Roll Call.